comes from Mark chapter 5 today, Mark chapter 5. And so there's some questions for you to engage uh, with your kids. And I love that last one there. What is something you think is impossible? And I'm certain what comes out of your kids' mouths will be completely different than what would come out of your mouth. And so um, my guess is there's some things that are definitely impossible that kids don't think um, are impossible, but we'd certainly encourage you to engage um, engage with them in talking about what they're learning today as well. Nehemiah chapter 2, and uh, going to take just two more weeks in this series, uh, Faith in um, um, are, or really just called exiles. Today, we're gonna talk about an active faith. We're gonna look at the story uh, of Nehemiah. Next week, we're gonna take just a brief pause since it is Grandparents uh, Sunday. We're gonna celebrate, uh, celebrate Grandparents Day next week. And then the following Sunday on the 24th, I will bring this series to a close. Uh, on September 24th, we're going to look at the story of Esther. So if you want to read a little bit ahead or uh, look into the story of Esther, I would encourage you to do so. Today, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 2. Just going to read the first five verses. Nehemiah chapter 2, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. This is after, remember, in 586 BC, so a long time ago, um, Babylon came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls of the city. They destroyed the temple. And many of God's people, they were taken into captivity for a period of 70 years. But this is after that period of 70 years. Some of God's people have returned, but they've not rebuilt the city. And so, so Nehemiah gets word that the, the very place where his ancestors are buried is still sitting in ruins. There is no life there. And so it stirs his heart. So verse four, it says, the king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is alive. It is powerful. It still speaks to us today. So I ask and pray, Holy Spirit, that in these next few moments together, as we center our attention, not around my words, but your words this morning, I pray that you would captivate our attention. Speak to every heart and every life in this room today. I pray that you would encourage us. God, convict us challenge us so that we would better reflect the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own. Help me to speak your word with clarity, with passion, with boldness, and with simplicity. And God, help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together. We ask this in your precious and holy name. Amen. As I, um, as I ponder I would not maybe encourage you to do this often because it can be depressing, but as I ponder the spiritual landscape of our culture today, um, I am oftentimes saddened by what I see, by what I hear, 
whether it be in the news, just in life in general. Here's a few things that, that really, when I consider the landscape of our culture today, here's a few things that I see. Number one, there is certainly a lack of empathy and little concern for the overall health of our communities. Um, many people today show no empathy whatsoever. They're concerned about themselves, but they have no concern for others. Second thing that I take notice of when I consider the landscape of our culture today, that is, I see a stagnant spirituality. By that, I just simply mean when we consider the spiritual landscape of our world today, they're really across the board. I'm not speaking of one location or one place, but across the board, there appears to be no life. There's no growth, this sluggish mentality spiritually. And, and honestly, uh, I think we see our culture is oftentimes in danger of compromising the godly values that we have for so long held to. Uh, one writer tells this story, a guy by the name of Palmer Chen Chen. He tells this story, he says, my brothers and I had traveled to the western edge of Zimbabwe to raft the Zambezi River. We boarded our raft at the base of the Victoria Falls. Massive amounts of water spilled over the top of the giant falls and dropped almost a thousand feet. The roar was deafening. The falls are the largest in the world, more than a mile wide and 300 feet high. Mist from the spray that fills the air like fog can be seen for 50 miles. The locals call it smoke that thunders. The water from the falls rushes down the gorge in torrents, creating the world's largest rapids. In the United States, the highest class rapid you are allowed to raft is a class five. The Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top seven and eight. How many of you have been whitewater rafting before? Many of you. How many would raft rapids at seven and eight? Not many of you. One or two. You're brave. As I sat on the edge of the eight-person raft, he says, all suited up in a tight, overstuffed jacket and a thick crash helmet, I felt like an overcautious tourist about to mount an overpowered moped in Honolulu or rent rollerblades on Huntington Beach. The Zambezi can't be that dangerous, can it? But then our guide said, when the raft flips, there was no if the raft flips or on the off chance we get flipped, but instead when the raft flips, he went on saying, stay in the rough water. You will be tempted to swim toward the stagnant water at the edge of the banks. Don't do it because it is in the stagnant water that the crocs wait for you. They are large and hungry. Even when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. So let me ask the question again. How many of you would, would jump on board with rapids at seven or eight with crocodiles in the water? Anybody brave enough to do that? Nobody. All right. Thought so. Stagnancy, listen though to what he says then in relationship to stagnant spirituality. He says this, stagnancy will kill your spirits. Church of tomorrow must resist stagnancy. God needs us out there in the rough waters, pouring our lives into people. 
live in the white water, live where it's just a little bit uncertain and unsafe. Here's the the truth of the matter. If we live in a place where there is uncertainty and where from a human perspective it is unsafe, it will cause us to get in a position where we rely completely on God. And what a beautiful place to be in. If we, if we put ourselves in the stagnant, calm, safe waters, supposedly safe waters, we rely on ourselves, and very rarely do we rely on God. But when we are in a position where there is uncertainty, in a position that seems unsafe from a human perspective, it gets us to a place where we trust completely in God. And let me tell you, that is a great place to be in when we rely completely on him. Spiritual stagnancy, when I survey the landscape of our culture, a third thing that I see is this passionless pursuit of God's presence. When I think about when I consider the landscape of where we are today, there are many who, who have no desire to spend time in God's word. Corporate worship is not a priority. Time in God's presence is not something that they look to. There is no passion in their pursuits of God. Some have just entered into a routine and they've lost the passion altogether. And I see that across the landscape altogether. How many are still glad you came this morning? There is good news, I promise. Now, this condition, this condition mirrored those who returned to Jerusalem in our story of Nehemiah, those who returned from captivity. Look at Nehemiah chapter one, verses two through three, and listen to the condition of those who had returned from captivity. Hanini, one of my brothers, Nehemiah said, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how, the things, about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Their city walls were lying in ruins and no one seemed to care. The temple had been destroyed. The city itself was still in the same condition, relatively speaking, that it was 70 plus years earlier when Babylon came in to destroy it. And nobody seemed to care about the condition of the city. They had lost all sense of purpose and passion when it came to the presence of God. We read this in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse, seven, uh, verse 17. This is after Nehemiah starts the, the project, project rebuild of the walls of Jerusalem, and they reinstitute the festival or the celebration of the Passover. And look at what it says, Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 17. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. So that indicates that there was no passion really since the days of Joshua. There was no fervency. There was no desire to be in the presence of God. And certainly even after the exile, when God's people were able to return, they still had not celebrated with such, such passion as had been before. They had become stagnant. And essentially they were spiritually dead. Nothing of significant spiritual value was taking place in the city of Jerusalem. Now, this status update on the city of Jerusalem, we see in scripture, it moved or stirred the heart of Nehemiah. 
Several Jews, as we know from Scripture and as I already made reference to, had already returned to Jerusalem. They were given permission to return to their homeland, to to start the rebuild process, and to once again inhabit the land that once belonged to them. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, talks about a decree that the Persian king, King Cyrus, had given permission to the Jews to return to their land. And so many had already made, made the journey back, and yet... Many were still passionless in their pursuit of God's presence. So many had already returned. And Nehemiah, though, Nehemiah was a Jew, but he actually remained in Persian territory. He was serving as cupbearer to the king. Now, let me tell you a little bit about a cupbearer. This is not a position that, that certainly was an important position. It was a valuable position to the king, But it's not a position that probably everybody was longing for because the cupbearer, one of their responsibilities, the cupbearer was responsible for making certain that that any beverage or any drink that was given to the king uh, was supposed to be tested by the cupbearer himself before they gave it to the king. Because as we know, and Certainly, probably still today in our culture today, there, there are people that want to wipe out the king. They want to they kill him. They want to poison him. And so the cupbearer had the beautiful responsibility of making certain that the drink that was being given to the king would not kill him or poison him. Now, how many of you would, would be front in line to sign up for that position, knowing that at any moment, any day, you could take a drink and it could be poison and your life is done? But that was the job of Nehemiah. He was the cupbearer to the king. Now, he was not physically really in exile anymore because God's people had already been given permission to return to Jerusalem, but he was still an outsider from some perspective because he was living in a land that was not his own. He asked his brother when his brother came uh, to give kind of a report on how things were going in Jerusalem. And this is the update that stirred Nehemiah's heart. Listen to, listen to Nehemiah, or look at Nehemiah's response when he heard the report given by his brother. This is the response of Nehemiah. He says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. When Nehemiah heard that his city, the place where his ancestors were buried, was still in ruins, that they had not even rebuilt the walls, that they were passionless in their pursuit of God, that they were stagnant in their spirituality. This is Nehemiah's response. He said, when I heard the news, when I heard the report, I sat down. He was almost overwhelmed by the reports. And he just began to weep. In fact, for days he said, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah was moved in his spirits to act on behalf of his people who were spiritually stagnant and lifeless in their pursuit of God. And I believe that Nehemiah's active faith brought life to his people and it ushered in a period of spiritual renewal for the people of God. Church, this same type of active faith displayed by Nehemiah must be lived out by Christ's followers today especially, especially as we learn to live faithful lives in a place that is not our home, that is not our permanent home. As I survey the landscape of our culture, spiritual stagnancy, passionless 
pursuit of God's presence, no empathy or no care or concern for for the overall health, the spiritual health of our communities. We need people who will live in active faith, who will be stirred. We need people when we hear those reports that we sit down and we weep, we mourn, we fast and we begin to pray asking God, God, how can I be used? to bring spiritual renewal and life to the very place that maybe is not my permanent home, but these are people who need to experience the presence of God. There's four aspects of Nehemiah's active faith that I believe we as believers need to emulate, and I wanna share those with you this morning. Number one, we must express serious concern and interest in the spiritual and physical condition of our own communities. Nehemiah showed a legitimate concern for his people, and for his city. Look at chapter one, verse two again. He said, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity. So he's living in Persia. He's serving as cupbearer to the king. And so he wants to get an insider's report. What's going on in Jerusalem? What's going on in the city where I used to live, where my ancestors are buried? What's happening there? Are they serving God faithfully? Have they, have they rebuilt the walls yet? And so Nehemiah wants to hear what's going on in Jerusalem. And so he says, I asked him, speaking of his brother and, the, and others who had come, he said, I asked him about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. He was interested in their well-being. It was more than just a how are you doing statement. This is not, you know, oftentimes, sometimes I know as human beings, we're busy and we pass one another. We say, how are you doing? And and sometimes we probably don't really care. I I hope we care, but but sometimes it's just a, a gesture that we give to people. But Nehemiah is not just saying, how are you doing? And then he's gonna continue on with his responsibilities. Nehemiah is concerned about the condition, the spiritual well-being of his city and of his people. He wanted a full report. These were his people. This was his city. He had invested in this place. He, he, he knew the very heart and the mentality of Jerusalem. This was the place where God's temple was, where, where worship was supposed to be happening. And he wanted these people in the city to spiritually thrive because this was God's desire. We, as Christ followers, we need to show some more concern and a greater interest in the well-being of our own communities. Listen, our Communities, our cities, our homes, our workplaces, our schools are full of people, people for whom Christ has died for, people he cares about, people he loves. And if he loves them and if he cares about them, we should as well. Their spiritual and physical conditions, listen, will impact our own well-being, whether we know it or not they will impact our own well-being. Recall, we need to recall that we weren't, remember I said this a few weeks ago, we were not called to live our lives either in isolation. Isolation is separation. And if we live our lives isolated from the world, guess what? We have no witness to reach the world. But we were also not called to live lives of assimilation. Assimilation is where where the world's values become our values. And if that's how we live our life, then whatever witness we did have will be corrupt and distorted. We were not called to be isolated from the world, nor were we called to be assimilating into the world. Jesus Jesus specifically says that we are to be in the world, but not what? Not of the world. And so we were called to live lives of transformation. And we need to know the pulse of our communities and our people so we can live in such a way. So I made this statement, I need to be 
And you can put your own name here. I need to be more, or I need to be concerned about more than just me. But how? How do I do that? I need to be mindful of those around me. I need to be engaged in community and city functions. I need to ask questions and listen to people's stories. Simply, I just need to take time. I, again, I know we live busy lives and it's very easy uh, to pass somebody and ask them how they're doing and then move on and forget about their situation. One of the prayers that sometimes I find myself praying that sometimes is difficult is that God, whatever I see as an interruption today in my day, make it an opportunity for me to point people to Christ. And, and that is something, and we're all guilty myself included. Um, sometimes when you're busy, when you have things to get done, when you have a checklist and you, you only have so much time in a day, sometimes I think we miss opportunities that God wants us to slow down, that God wants us to see this is not an interruption. This is an opportunity for me to, to work through you in this person's life. Think about the ministry of Jesus for just a moment. I mean, how many times was Jesus traveling from a pl one place to another? He had an agenda. He was going somewhere. He was trying to get from point A to point B. And how many times do people, inter do people interrupt Jesus on his journey? I mean, many times he was trying to get to a, a place where there was somebody who was sick who ended up dying because he didn't get there in time. Now he ended up resurrecting that individual, but we see that Jesus saw those opportunities as opportunities to do ministry and to do work in people's life. We need to be active in church life, especially in community outreach. We need to stay updated on what's happening. And then we need to just simply be interested. We need to show empathy or be empathetic, care about our communities and our cities, and be concerned about the spiritual landscape of where we are. Number two, second thing we need to emulate when it comes to Nehemiah's active faith is we must be moved to action in response to the state of our city and the spiritual life of our people. Look at how quickly Nehemiah's heart, Nehemiah's heart was quickly stirred to action. As soon as he heard the reports about the city and it was still in ruins and his people were, were passionless in their pursuit of God's presence, it says immediately he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. If you read on in chapter one, you're going to see that he offers a prayer of corporate confession. He's essentially saying, God, we've messed up. We've, we've fallen short. We, we've not done what you've asked us to do. Please forgive us. But then he will long to return to Jerusalem so he can be with his people. We look in, in, in Nehemiah, says, I replied, chapter two, verse five, he said, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He is stirred to action. We, we see that he then would go on and he would inspect the city to get a better understanding uh, of their condition. Nehemiah chapter two, verses 11 through 13. I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding after dark. I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. And then later on, he made plans to rebuild the walls and restore life back to the city. Nehemiah 2, verse 7, he says, But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Nehemiah, when he heard the report, he was moved. His heart was stirred to action. 
He had an active faith. He didn't just sit around and say, well, that's sad. I'm sorry to hear about that. Hopefully somebody else will, will maybe take charge. He said, no, I, I gotta do something. He wept, he mourned, he prayed, he confessed. And then he began to say, Lord or, or King, if it pleases you, let me return to the city. I need to return to my people and I need to be moved to do something to bring life back to the city. Christ followers, we must act now. To take notice, this is important, to take notice of the spiritual condition of our culture and do nothing is sinful. To survey the landscape of our culture and to see where we are, to see the, the passionless and the godless activity that takes place and to do nothing from a believer standpoint is sinful. Why? Because we have the solution. It's not new programs. It's not embracing the coolest fad or telling more stories. We have the solution, and the answer is Jesus Christ himself. He came to do what? Jesus said, I came to bring you life and life more abundantly. We, we have the answer to bring renewal and to revive the passion that once existed in our communities, and the answer is Jesus Christ. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we need to, we need to infuse our culture with Jesus through our words and through our actions and even through our singing. This is essentially the call of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. We need to tell people about Jesus. He is the answer and the solution. Dismissing the problem altogether and expecting someone else to deal with it is foolish and selfish. Nehemiah didn't just sit there as cupbearer to the king and said, well, maybe somebody else will step up. Maybe somebody else will be moved to action. You know, maybe somebody else will get their act together and do something. I'm just going to do what, what I'm supposed to be doing here. No, Nehemiah, really, I'm not going to wait around for somebody else to step up. Nehemiah's heart was stirred to action. He requested to leave the presence of the king, and he immediately made his way to Jerusalem. And what I love is one of the very first things he does, he doesn't, he doesn't go before the people and say, all right, guys, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I need you, family. I need this family on this wall. I need this family. No, what he did was he went out at night, he didn't tell anybody about it. He went out tonight, just took a few people with him, and he began to inspect the condition of the city. Sometimes we are, are so quick to action that we, we skip the process of discernment. God, what do you want us to do? What do we need to do? Sometimes we move too quickly. We don't want to get ahead of God. Now, we don't want to lag behind, but we need to make certain that we are in step with God. And that's what Nehemiah did. He took, took an opportunity to go to inspect the walls, to inspect the city. He didn't tell a lot of people about it. And then he prayed and got discernment from God. Okay, here's what I want you to do. We are called to represent Christ to a broken and hurting world. We are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that means we have to enter the mess. Sometimes that means it's gonna be hard, but that's what God calls us to. It's not just the call of a few, but it's the call of everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. Faith Listen, faith is active. It's not stagnant. That's why James will say faith without works is dead or it is useless. He didn't just call us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then sit back and wait for things to happen. Part of believing in Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is being stirred to action, to have concern and care for the very people that Christ has died for. So what should our first course of action be? It should be to reflect that of Nehemiah, and he got down on his knees. Prayer of confession, Lord, we have fallen short. 
He indicated a prayer of, emp- of empowerment. Lord, send me to be your instruments for good. Prayer of discernment. Lord, show me where to begin and what to do. And a prayer of strength. Lord, help me accomplish your plans. So our first course of action, like Nehemiah, needs to be to get down on our knees and to just simply pray a prayer of confession. Lord, we've fallen short. Lord, we need you. I need you to empower me and strengthen me to do what you've called me to do. God, give me discernment. Show me where to start. Show me what my role. And I know in this room today, the roles will look different for every single person. God may be calling you to engage in your home in a different way than somebody else or your workplace or, or in this community or in the school that God has pla- placed you in or wherever that may be. It's gonna look different for everyone, but we all have to get on our knees and just simply ask, Lord, as my heart is stirred, as my heart is moved, what are you calling me to do? I can't answer that for you. God will reveal that to you, but you need to be open to that. And then we need to consider our own community, but how we need to intercede on behalf of the people. We need to plead for God to to bring renewal and life change. We need to find ways that we can be the boots on the ground. We don't don't serve in the community just so people can pat us on the shoulder and say, good job. We do it because we wanna be the boots on the ground. We wanna be the hands and feet of Jesus. We have opportunities to form relationships with families, with kids, with adults. And we wanna be able to have those relationships so we can have conversations about what God is doing in our life, in our hearts. And we wanna be those, those boots on the ground. We want to make Christ known to those around us. Again, we need to view our life, our every single day, not, not those moments as interruptions, but you view them as opportunities to make Jesus Christ known. Active faith marks the life of every kingdom-minded person. Active faith marks the life of every kingdom-minded person. Number three, let me give these last two to you this morning. We must rely on God for transformation and spiritual success. Notice that these were God's plans that were placed in the heart of Nehemiah. Listen to what he says in chapter two, verse 12. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. The plans included rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They would experience pushback from others. We'll see that in chapter two. You'll see it in chapter three. If you read Nehemiah, they would experience pushback and opposition, but Nehemiah was confident that God would usher in success because these were not Nehemiah's plans. He prayed and he got discernment from the Lord and he knew that these were the plans of God. So even in the midst of persecution and opposition and resistance, he knew these plans would succeed because they were God's plans and not his own. Nehemiah chapter 20, verse 20, or two, verse 20 says, I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding the wall. These plans would be carried out. We'll see in chapter three. What I love is these plans are gonna be carried out by several families. He's gonna, he's gonna put the, you know, let me just give you an example. The Bodell family, you get this section of the wall. The whole family gets this section. The Donathan family, this section. You know, Rigby's, you get this section. That's how they, they tackled the rebuilding of the walls. They work together. And so they are going to accomplish these plans through the, through the involvement of several families. So what does that mean for us? We must keep proper perspective. And remember that God is in charge. God's plans are better. And only God has the power and authority to bring transformation. The moment that we kid ourselves and think that my plans will succeed, 
or that I have the authority or the power to bring transformation is a dangerous spot to be in. We need to recognize that God's plans will succeed and God has the power to bring transformation in people's lives. Therefore, that should lead us to a place where we say, I want God's plans for our church and for this community. I wanna seek his ways, not my own. I wanna trust God for success, not my own wisdom, not my own skill set, not my own ideas. Uh, Psalm 127, verse one, unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. I want God's plans to be front and center. My plans and programs won't transform a heart. But God has the power and authority to bring life change and transformation to an individual and an entire community. Therefore, this is why we must submit to his ways actively engage in his work and rely on him for success. Folks, we have the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. And so our objective needs to be, should be, to do whatever we can to point people to the solution. Our goal is not to point people to our programs or to my plans or my agenda, but to point people to the only one who is worthy and capable of bringing transformation. I, I, could, I could preach the most dynamic sermon in the world, and, and I could be on it, but my words are not gonna change somebody's heart in life unless they encounter the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why when I pray before I preach, God help me to decrease and you to increase, because I don't want you all, I don't want anybody listening online to hear my words. I want them to hear the very, uh, the very words of Jesus Christ himself. I want them to encounter uh, the presence of God. And so that is very important. Spiritual success is measured at the heart level, which is why God must be at the center of it all. Spiritual success is measured at the heart level. Therefore, God has to be at the center of it all because I cannot change or transform or move somebody's heart, but God is able. And that's why we must focus on him. Finally, we must resist opposition and tune out the voices that try to keep us from doing God's work. Notice that Nehemiah and the builders, and they faced severe opposition while doing the work of God. They were experiencing all kinds of resistance from outsiders. Look at Nehemiah 4. It'll be up on the screen, 1 through 3. Sambalit was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and he mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and, and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Later on in verses seven through eight, but when Sambalit and Tobiah and the Arabs and Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that, that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion. Doesn't that sound like what the enemy does to confuse us, to, to destroy the very work that God has called us to do? The builders, look, we also see not only were they getting resistance from the outside, but they were becoming weary in their work, especially knowing that their enemy was lurking near. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. 
And there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. So they're grumbling and they're complaining. They're tired. This sounds just like the people of God in in the wilderness as well. They became tired and weary and we have no food and we have no water. This sounds a lot like Christians even today where we complain and we're weary and we're tired because the enemy, what he wants to do is he wants to get us off track. He wants to distort us, confuse us, destroy us. Anything he can do, whether it's from the outside or whether it's from the inside, Whatever he can do to get us off track, he will do. That is the work of the enemy. But Nehemiah, he provided strong spiritual leadership and he helped his people to stay focused on the task at hand. He he helped them to tune out the opposing voices and to be prepared for the enemy. What did Nehemiah do? First of all, in chapter four, verses four and five, he prayed for strength. God, give us strength. We're weary, we're tired. We're, we're, we're receiving resistance from the outside. Our people are tired because this is a lot of work and, and they're afraid that the enemy is coming. God, give us strength. But then what did he do? He called the people to remember the Lord. Look at chapter four, verse 14. It says, then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Sometimes we, we need to just simply come back to a place in our life where we remember how good and faithful the Lord is. It, it's so easy, and I think we've all been there. It's so easy when we are so consumed with, with, with being confused and tired and weary, and we feel like everybody and everything is coming against us, and we cannot get relief, and we're tired in the work that we're doing. We, we, we know deep down this is what God's called me to. We know this is a good work, but, but man, I'm not seeing fruitful results. Sometimes we just need to come to a place where we pause, and we remember who God is. He is faithful, he is good. None of the circumstances change who God is. We, we declared it in song. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And maybe you're here today. Maybe, maybe you're tired in your work. And maybe you've been frustrated in what you've been doing. Maybe you've, you've been looking for results. Let me just remind you, sometimes we need to pause. And we need to still ourselves and remind us, God is still good. He is still faithful. One of the ways that we can do that, I uh, last Sunday was preaching in, in Muncie and was preaching from Psalm 19, one of the most um, perfect ways that we can still ourselves and be reminded of how good and faithful God is, is really to open up, open up the Psalms. Um, Psalm 19 talks about how God reveals himself in creation, but how he also reveals himself in his word. And when he reveals himself to us, it should lead to, to us responding in some form or some fashion. When Isaiah received a, a vision from the Lord in Isaiah chapter six, he, he saw the Lord in his temple and the train of his robe filled the entire temple. Seraphim, two, uh, they had wings, two, they covered their feet, two, they covered their face, two, they were flying around declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah, after he experienced that revelation, he just simply said, Lord, here I am, send me, send me. Sometimes we need to put ourselves in a place where we can experience the presence of God, where we can hear him so we can respond to his revelation. And and then Nehemiah, what did he do? He developed a very specific battle plan. I love his battle, and I'm almost done this morning. I love the battle plan that he he brought together because he knew that the people were tired. He knew that the enemy was lurking near. So what did he do? He said to the families, he said, okay, I want half of you. Half of you are going to stand on guard, 
while the other half, you're gonna do the work. And then we'll rotate. Uh, you know, 12 hours later, we're gonna shift now. They were working in shifts. Now you're gonna be on guard this time. And the other group that was just on guard, you're gonna do the work. So, so there was always this preparation. They were prepared for the enemy, but at the same time, they were still able to continue the work of God. They, they, they weren't so consumed with, okay, we just need to stand on guard. If, they, if everybody would have stood on guard, they would have never built the walls. So they developed this incredible, incredible plan. Okay, half of us stand on guard. The other half, we're gonna do the work and then we'll rotate. So that way we can stay strong and healthy and make sure that we are doing what God has called us to do. And as a result, they finished the work with the help of God. Number Nehemiah chapter six, verses 15 and 16. So on October 2nd, the wall was finished. just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. So here's what I want us to hear this morning. As we try to do God's work, reach our community, spread the gospel, advance the kingdom, we can count on resistance. I know that's not something we always want to hear, but we can bank on resistance. If we're doing the work of God, we can count on resistance and opposition. If there isn't any resistance, I would question the work we're doing. Because the enemy's not gonna spend his time or waste his time to, to distort or distract or confuse people who are doing things that are not godly in the first place, that are not accomplishing his work. So if there isn't resistance, I would question the work we're doing. But if we're doing the work of God, I can promise you we will experience resistance and opposition. The enemy desires nothing more than to kill or bring to an end the very work of God or even create chaos even inside the church. So we need to learn, folks. We need to learn how to tune out the voice of the enemy and tune into the very voice of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? We have to distinguish between the two voices. We need to know the difference between the voice of the enemy and the voice of the Holy Spirit. How do we, how do we distinguish between the two? We do it by spending time in God's presence. The more that we spend time in his word, time in his presence, his voice will become more clear to us. His character becomes better known to us, but that only happens. We cannot expect to never spend time in God's presence and somehow be able to figure out the difference between the enemy's voice and God's voice. We won't. We have to to make certain that we spend time in his word, in prayer, in his presence, because that will help us distinguish between the two voices. We need to bathe everything we do in prayer, uh, in service, in our personal devotion time, whatever it may be, we need to bathe it in prayer. We need to work with a spirit of joy and enthusiasm. That's what these workers eventually did. They were joyful in their work. Everything that we do, we need to do so with joy. We, 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 sh we have something to be joyful about. We've been rescued, we've been saved, we've been delivered. Uh, we, we have the hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ. We should be joyful in the work that we're doing, even if the circumstances make it difficult. We need to be prepared in all things. Nehemiah was prepared, he had a plan. All right, we're gonna divide and conquer. Half of you are on guard, half of you are gonna build the walls. Now let's continue the work that God has called us to do. We need to be prepared in what God has called us to do and we need to work together. Again, notice how the families worked together. Several were on guard duty, several were building, but they did it together as a team. They were unified in their mission. If the church is divided, if the church it has internal conflict in it, it's gonna be very hard for us to move forward the work that God has called us to do. We must be unified. That does not mean, I preached a whole message on that when we went through Philippians. That does not mean that, that we are um, that does not mean that we're gonna be in a position where maybe we all agree with one another on certain things, but we need to be unified in our mission and what God has called us to do. And as we work together, then we will begin to see God's plan and God's success come through. Would you stand with me this morning? Worship team, if you would come. I wanna end with this story. 
The sea captain and his chief engineer, they were arguing over who was most important to the ship. To prove their point to each other, they decided to swap places. The chief engineer ascended to the bridge. The captain went to the engine room. Several hours later, the captain suddenly appeared on deck covered with oil and dirt. Chief, he said, waving aloft a monkey wrench, you have got to get down there. I cannot make her go. Of course you can't, replied the chief. She's aground. On a team, we don't excel each other. We depend on each other. Our communities, listen, our communities need to experience spiritual renewal. There are people everywhere who need to experience God's transforming presence. So it's imperative that we live our lives as exiles in such a way to see God's kingdom advance. So what does that look like? Let me just summarize that for you with four statements. First of all, we need to, we need to declare, God, give me a concern for my community and my people. Secondly, we need to say, God, move me to specific action. I don't wanna just have a concern for it, but Lord, stir in my heart so much that I move to very specific action. Number three, God, help me rely on you and not me to transform lives. And number four, God, help me tune out the voice of the enemy and to tune in to the only voice that matters, and that is the voice of God. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Here's the reality. Um, when I survey the landscape of our culture, certainly there is spiritual stagnancy. There is a lack of empathy. And there is a passionless pursuit of God's presence. But we can respond in one or two ways. We can be frustrated with and overwhelmed by that landscape and do nothing and just leave it and hope somebody else will engage. Or we can allow our hearts to be moved by God. It's a very specific action. reach those who desperately need Jesus.